Alan Snyder is the founder and managing partner of Shinecock Partners. Alan left Wall Street after making a huge impact in the market. He then decided to never work for someone again and become his own boss. Alan specializes in investing in alternative assets, like art. Great opportunity you may have never thought of investing in or even knew it was possible. Find out how you can and find out how you can figure out your risk of ruin. All thanks to Alan. Let's just get right down to business. Joe Show. This, this is the Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Hello, Alan. Welcome to the show. Let's get rolling Hello. by get, giving us a brief background about yourself. Uh, well, I'm a founder of a 30-year-old uh, investment management family office boutique. And uh, I started it when I quit Wall Street. When I quit Wall Street, it was a long time ago, clearly. <laughs> and uh, I was running, or maybe they were running me, pretty much all the product areas for what became Morgan Stanley. Uh, and my swan song there was with a couple of other people starting the Discover Card. And by then it was no fun. So I quit. Now, here's the humor for anybody on, uh, watching this. I woke up. And I said, I'm not going to work for anybody for a while. And I woke up and said, holy smokes, I have a few pennies. Where am I going to keep them? Because I knew Wall Street never met a fee they didn't like. I was guilty of that as a young punk. And second, Wall Street's frequently casual about risk. So I said, oh, my God, it's too hard to earn this money. So I created for myself basically an all-weather fund. And that was a long time ago. I'm happy to report it's ground out a pretty steady rate of return for a long period. Uh, so I started Shinnecock, and for most of its existence, uh, we never took in outside capital until fairly recently, where I have some young guys, and I owe it to them to uh, expand it. While I was uh, building Shinnecock or watching Shinnecock grow, I ended up doing a bunch of other things. Uh, here's, rather than boring anybody, I, I restructured a $20 billion insurance company, started a web company that no accounting for taste grew and got to be fairly sizable, sold it, went back to Shinnecock, blah, 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 did a bunch of stuff. I guess the thing I would suggest, rather than my boring people with that stuff, is go to Shinnecock.com, that's like the golf course or the location on Long Island, S-H-I-N-N-E-C-O-C-K.com. And the reason I'd say go there is you can learn more about us. That's probably boring, but there are a whole raft of articles because we publish stuff uh, for the do-it-yourselfers about doing due diligence on funds, or investment strategies, uh, having, in my case, played at scale, now playing at a smaller scale for sure, but having fun. Uh, there's a lot of meat there for anybody that's interested, particularly in alternatives. Uh, because my prejudice is niche investments are where it's at, uh, reason being they're generally uncorrelated or low correlation. Everything correlates at some point to one, uh, but they're lower correlation. And the object is to grind out a rate of return consistently. 
Um, now, setting the stage a little bit, my God, where in God's green earth do you invest today? <laughs> no, I know you're you, the, the uh, way to your heart is through uh, blockchain and uh, crypto. It's interesting. Uh, I'm probably a little more conservative, but where do you invest today? It's killer out there because you look historically a 60-40 portfolio. Think 60% equities traditionally or more aggressive stuff, 40% debt or your anchor to windward to bridge those times when your uh, 60% isn't doing so well. And historically, that's outperformed everything. But you look at the market today, oh my God, you say, all right, the 60%, look at equities, frothy. We're talking really peppy, the Case-Shiller PE index is 33% higher than it's been in the last 20 years. Uh, that could give one pause. The Fed, the markets are awash in capital. The, the Fed has a $7 trillion balance sheet today. Wow, huge, look out below. And you see other kind of goofy stuff Tesla's up 800% in January. 25% uh, of the market volume was retail. And you saw nitwit stuff like GameStop, AMC, and, and all of that stuff distorting. I mean, come on. You know, you tra saw trading in Hertz, <laughs> filed for <laughs> bankruptcy, people are buying it. Come on. Hello, there's no value. So you've got equities that are really challenged. I'll give you one having had a web company that stuck in my mind. The IPOs have greater losses in the last 12 months than existed in 1999, the height of, you know, the web boom. Oh, you know, gotta give one pause. All right. You say, well, that's challenging. I think there's solutions. They're not easy. Uh, now, let's look at the other side of the equation. The 40% that is your anchor to windward, traditionally intermediate grade bonds. I think you have to have your head examined to have intermediate grade or longer duration bonds. Why? There is asymmetric risk. In the 80s, interest rates were around 16%. They've fallen today, 10-year treasury, let's call it around one. Can it go much lower? The Fed has said no negative rates. So the answer is no. So what's the probability? It goes up. Already this year, if you bought the 10-year treasury bond, you're in a loss position not too encouraging. So what the hell do you do with fixed income? I think it's a challenge. Um, you know, perspective. Inflation is running higher today 
than the 10-year Treasury bill. So value destroying. So what do you do in that bucket? I will share some ideas because there are alternatives. I think there are some pretty nifty ones. All right. Pulling the camera back a little bit. You look at this picture and you say, all right, what do I do? I think niche investments. Well, what's some of the really smart money doing today? The Yale Endowment has probably one of the best investment track records out there. Here's a shocker. 89% of their capital is in alternatives or real asset classes. Harvard, no slouch either. About 60% is in alternatives or, or real assets. Now, benchmarking. The average pension plan over the last 20 years generated about 6%. Calper is probably the largest. 10-year track record. They have a, by the way, this is almost hilarious. They have a bogey, Joe, of earning 7%. <laughs> the last 10 years, they've earned 472. Now, I hear investors say to me, I'll never forget this. I was on an airplane flying to New York a few years ago, and I was talking to a guy sitting next to me. He said, Alan, I don't get out of bed unless it's 25% return. I'm looking at him like, give me a break. It doesn't happen. And I said, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a seven-digit check today if you can prove that you generate a 25% return. He got very quiet. The conversation came to, came to a stop. All right. What's the critical thing I believe in investing? All right, Joe, here's a fun question for you. You're a hot shot. What's the eighth wonder of the world? There's seven known ones. What's the eighth wonder of the world? I don't even know. Compound returns. <laughs> Loss, generating losses destroys investment performance. So I would argue you want to grind out a consistent rate of return because your performance will be better than any of those pension plans who can buy any kind of investment advice because they're rich. And so I would argue you want to grind out a consistent rate of return like Yale, like Harvard, and people like that. Now, one of the things, given your uh, misbegotten youth when you were living in Puerto Rico, we'll talk about Puerto Rico at some point. But if I, if I were to look today, and yes, I'm prejudiced about this, what I think is an outstanding off the beaten path investment for that 40% bucket. All right, hold on to your knickers. It's investing, lending money against museum quality fine art. Here's the trade. Lend money against, oh, I don't know, a Rothko painting, a Greco painting, Damien Hurst, maybe, something with pedigree. 
for a one-year term loan where the borrower pays the insurance costs and the borrower pays, now this is critical, this warms my black heart, where the borrower pays the storage costs. Why? Because as the lender to this borrower, we keep the collateral in a bonded art warehouse. Think about it. This is hard asset lending where you control the underlying asset. You don't pay, guess what? We're gonna sell the art. Now you're gonna do it at basically a sub 50% loan to value ratio. That's less than most real estate deals. Now, why does Alan fall in love with this hard asset class? You think about the collateral, compare it to lending against all the securitized auto finance. Uh, I know you like mortgages, mortgages. We'll come back to that. You lend against a damn car, it, the value depreciates like a house on fire. And the car Equipment. has wheels, has yeah. wheels, so get away from the lender. <laughs> yeah, Equipment. Same thing, and you don't control the car or the equipment. You have to go repossess it. Uh, and you have all those guys you know, have some fame repossessing cars. With art, pretty neat. Art moves around the world like gold with currency fluctuations. Art's transportable. I buy a, a, an apartment building in LA where I live. Fine, as long as the LA market is doing well. If it isn't, I'm toast. I can't move the building. Art, I can move. If the US market's poor, I can sell it in Hong Kong, Abu Dhabi, London, or wherever. That's one great characteristic. Here's a second. Art over the last 50 years is appreciated around 8%. High-end art, museum quality art. Last 20 years, a little less, about 5.5%. So what does that do? That gives you, which I like, being a nervous Nelly, more room to be wrong. Okay, that's good. Now, it's a big market. Most people don't realize this. They're about... Mm, about $65 billion a year in transactions. Art lending, relatively new. Here's another touchstone, I would argue for any investor. Is capital short? Where do you want to invest? You want to invest in places that are capital short, right? It, it gives you an added degree of protection. Loans in the art world are growing about 15% a year. Currently, it's, I don't know, different estimates, call it um, 20 to $24 billion of outstanding art loans. So you've got a market of size, you got some characteristics of the collateral that are really good. Now, who's borrowing? That's my next question. <laughs> Are the borrowers any good? There are three segments to the market. And 
I'm prejudiced about which segments we should play in. One, gallerist dealers that need inventory financing. Okay, why do I think they're so good? Because in the art world, reputation is paramount for a dealer. If they lose their reputation, nobody will buy anything because they won't trust them. So if a dealer were to play games with us, they're betting their reputation, which is far more important than our loan against a piece of art that they have in inventory. So that gives hearts and minds. Yes, our loans are a recourse. That helps too. Uh, but the reputational aspect is really important. All right, I love that segment. Second segment. Think collectors that don't have a relationship with a private bank. Lots of them. You know, they may have a piece of art that's appreciated dramatically and they don't want to sell it to pay the tax. You know, they're waiting for a stepped up basis on death. Uh, that's a, a collector would do that. We've had collectors that have come to say, oh, God, I got to make a tax payment. I need to get a little cash out of my collection. Then there are collectors that say, I'm really good at it. Just like you'd leverage your portfolio in stock. You say, hey, I want to leverage my portfolio. We've had some players like that. So that's the individual collector market. Then a third segment, which we don't play in. And it, here's why. If I'm you know, a private client, ultra, ultra high net worth at, let's say, city private, uh, U.S. trust, part of Bank of America now, et cetera. We know that those institutions uh, charge a lot for their investment advisory. So those accounts are very, very profitable to those institutions. So when one of those people say, hey, Joe, I'd like to buy uh, my 100-foot yacht, my Picasso, my uh, Gulfstream jet, they're willing to give what I would call, in the parlance, an accommodation loan at rates that reflect that they're earning so much money from the account, they'll give a lower rate than a standalone independent lender would provide. So we're not going to compete there um, unless there's a special circumstance. So now I know, uh, given your background, you're going to say, yeah, but Alan, what's the downside? <laughs> As you should. And here's the way I looked at it. I'm the largest investor as an individual in what we do. So losing money, basic rule, sucks. Earning nothing also isn't so peppy either, but number one rule, don't lose money. Okay, there's an index that Sotheby's owns called the May Moses Index. Two professors put it together. This is artwork that's high-end artwork that's been through two or more major auctions. Oh, the auction houses think um, Sotheby's, Christie's, 
Bottoms, Phillips, those are the big four. So they look at that art and over the last period of time, here's a fun question for anybody in the audience, including you. When do you think the largest drawdown was for high-end art? I was shocked. I got this wrong, so don't feel bad. Yeah, you. the largest drawdown. Uh, in what period of time? Yeah, what year? I mean, maybe like four, five, 2004, five. Warm. 1990, this surprised me. There was a mild recession. Art, the index went down 25%. In 0809, God, I don't even want to think back on it. Equities went down. The S&P went down, what, 53%. NASDAQ, um, I think about 72%. High-end art went down 22.5%. So some correlation, but a hell of a lot better than almost all other asset classes. So with those markers, we looked at and said, can we get comfortable with a 50% or less loan to value ratio? And the answer was yes. My young Turks said, all right, Snyder, get off our back now. You should feel comfortable. I said, no, 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 not enough. <laughs> of course, they gave me the fish eye and, and I said, well, Someday we'll have a default. I'm happy to say after almost four years, we've yet to have any defaults, but I worry about that. So I said, we got to look at price volatility. So what we did is we took two year windows in time, windowed it back 20 years. And so what's the average price volatility? This was comforting, about eight and a half percent. So and I picked two years and said, well, if the world comes to an end and we have to, something defaults and we have to sell the art, maybe it'll take us some time. So I want to, you know, think about that price volatility. That nailed it for us. Um, so then I'll tell you how we got into it. It's sort of a fun story. Um, a friend of mine, running a multi-billion dollar credit fund in New York, said, Snyder, you're having fun these days. I'm jealous. We have a $100 million book, which is a sideline for us lending against art. He says, you got to look at it. So we did. And the more we looked, the more we liked it. This was five, five and a half years ago. And then I reported back to my pal. I said, you know, we looked at all your documents. They stink. <laughs> You're a lender, for Christ's sakes. You got to protect yourself as a lender. He said, all right, Snyder. God damn it. I introduced this to you. When you rewrite the documents, you got to give me a set for free. So I said, OK. So I gave him a set of the documents we created. Now, during that period of time, it's kind of fun. We wrote this article, no accounting for taste. It got republished. It was a white paper on the space. It's on our website. And we started getting inquiries. 
So I said, hmm, we should probably pursue this. So then did two other things. Having been in the financial world forever, I hope somebody would say, well, Alan, you, you're not totally brain dead as an investor, but you ain't no art expert either. Guilty as charged. Now we've learned a lot since then. <laughs> they got you, they called but, you out. But, but it's true. So I recruited an advisory board of art denizens, you know, experts. Oh, a kick-ass lawyer, art lawyer. Um, a guy that had run major uh, art museums. A woman in New York who's an absolute character who's an advisor to high-end art collectors. And she teaches at Hunter. Uh, another woman who's been very helpful for us, she works at probably the premier art logistics company because art moves around. You know, it gets displayed at a museum, so we have to ship it to the museum. So we recruited them. And here's another tidbit when you think about that 40%. I get the luxury today of tilting at windmills and pursuing things to probably a ridiculous level of detail. Most credit fund structures, and here's something I would ask any listener to be careful about, aren't optimally done. So we spent a bunch of money, three law firms, and I said, okay, we're gonna try to crack the code on a credit fund structure. And here's, with a lot of help from other people, and it's been vetted independently of us, we came up with an unusual legal structure that accomplishes some pretty nifty objectives. One, for any offshore investor, you typically, you know, you have these cumbersome structures, right, of offshore feeders in the Cayman Islands, yada, yada, yada. They're wholly macro expensive. And if, if the uh, balderdash hits the fan, they're a problem because the Cayman laws are pretty tricky. All right, we created a structure and why are they put in place? They're put in place to avoid and create a blocker against what's called ECI, effectively connected income, taxable, not so great for an offshore investor. We created a structure where we don't need all of those blockers, you know, all that heavy weight of it costs probably a couple hundred basis points. So an offshore investor can invest with us directly into a U.S. regulated fund and not have an ECI. Second, another problem. Think of all the tax qualified accounts. The bugaboo there is UBTI, tax. They don't like it. This structure means there is no UBTI. And here for many of the listeners might be more practical. Most of the credit fund structures pass through, it sort of gets hidden it's an oops, we got a surprise for you. 
those investment expenses associated with that fund flow through a K-1, your tax thing. So they're not included in the results of the fund because it's hitting you directly and frequently is a surprise. The structure we put in place allows you to deduct those expenses pre-tax. That's worth, I don't know, depending on your calculation, 100 to 125 basis points, one and a quarter percent interest. That's nice. So we put this vehicle together and uh, we had incubated the strategy for 22 months in another pool of capital we had. Then we rolled the positions into the fund, marked them to market, yes. And we launched the fund and you know, I don't have a lot of pressure, thank God, for high fees, so they're very low fees. And I hate cash drag because a lot of the big credit funds have cash drag because they've had a hard time deploying capital. So we've grown it slowly. Now, that fund, very conservative, maybe too conservative for some people, but here are the characteristics of it. It has a, here's a shocker. It has a very short duration. I love that. It has a duration of about four months. Now, this is unusual because the liquidity provisions match the portfolio. How many times do people say, oh, you can get your money back. I've invested in stuff like that. And then when you say, well, okay, I'd like it back. Well, maybe not, because our stuff is longer duration than the liquidity terms. It's an ugly place to end up. So we didn't want that. So it has very short duration. It has a loan to value ratio of about today. Let's call it, 30, it's 37%, but let's call it roughly 40 that's comfortable, and it generates a net to the investor about 7% yield. I don't know too many places with that downside protection where you can get a 7% yield. Now, for a little more aggressive, there's two ways somebody can play in this field, with us anyway. The fund has a requirement or a limit that's self-imposed of saying no more than 15% to any single borrower or 15% to any single artist. I don't know about you, Joe, but I see funds that blow up, that fall in love with the position, right? Oh, don't worry. We marked it on cost, but now the market is 50% of the fund and then it craters and you're toast. Uh, so we put that in place. Now, what's that meant for us is that we have some of these larger gallerist dealers that come to us and say, hey, Alan, I know your fund is full, but we have more great collateral and we want to borrow against it. Will you give us a loan? So what we do on those is create, which some people really like these days, what are called co-investment opportunities or sidecars yep. where we will sell participations in the loan. Now, here's the trade-off. 
Let's put the pickle on the fork. The sidecars are, I think, very good. They're higher yielding, somewhere between nine and 11%, the fund's at about seven. So the sidecars are nine to 11. The fund, by the way, has no leverage. The sidecars don't either, but they're more direct. That's the positive, the higher yield. The, port, the collateral is, you know, call it somewhere between six works of art and 20, but typically in a single genre. So they're not as diversified. In the fund, there's, you know, 85 pieces across all different flavors of art. The sidecars are more concentrated by genre, and clearly they're more concentrated because it's a single borrower. Okay, the fund has, I don't know, 14, 15 borrowers today. So there's the trade-off. And these things, uh, I'm happy to say, we offer them periodically, and uh, they've been oversubscribed, which is nice, makes it easier to get them done. Uh, so why is there, why, is, why, why such a, I guess, safe, we'll call a safe investment with such a low LTV and I guess a low variable, you know, difference in price on an annual basis, not using leverage. You know, <laughs> I mean, that, that seems like, uh, you know, a case where you do want to be using leverage. Well, you could call me a panty waste uh, or other things. I've been called a lot of different names. We're, we're in the process of pro putting on the fund half a turn of leverage. In other words, for every dollar of equity, we'll have at a maximum rate 50 cents of debt. That'll increase the yield. Uh, but you know, and uh, hedge fund guys, maybe you tell me, Alan, you're just dumb. You should lever it like other hedge funds, two, three, four X. Uh, I think it's nice to have something that's pretty conservative where it's yielding better than most other things with a lot of downside protection. Uh, I always get nervous when people say, well, this strategy, Alan, is rock solid. We're gonna level it, lever it 10 X. Uh, I'm old enough to remember long-term capital uh, at 100x leverage at various times because um, it was so certain. And they had all these incredible brain power behind it. However, let's say, what's the big bugaboo of this strategy? Any hard asset, actually. You're a real estate guy. How do you establish the V the value in the loan to value ratio. In real estate, what do you do? You, you get comparative analytics. Well, this building's sort of similar to the one we have. It sold for in the last year or two. All right, so that's the proxy for establishing value. Now, art's kind of interesting. Well, a good bit of the art that we have has been through a major auction. Christie Sotheby's, one of those. I would argue 
that's as good a price discovery as you can get. It's like it's like the stock market: bidders and buyers and sellers negotiating pricing. That's what happens there. Now, have all the loans we made been through a major auction in a recent period of time? No, most, but not all. For example, there was a Rothko painting. It had been in a private collection for 30 years. Okay, uh, what did we do? There are three major appraisal companies. Like you'd get an appraisal on a piece of your, your apartment yep. building. They're called Gurjohns, Winston, and Paul Mall. Been around for a long time, uh, appraise art all over the place. So we will get an appraisal from one of them. Or maybe there's a, it's a special piece of art and we'll get the appraisal person that is expert in that piece of art. Okay, that's one data point to get comfortable on the V. In addition, we do a lot of other work. Here's the hassle with this uh, activity. We do specialty finance too, but here's the hassle with art. All the work is up front. We check the FBI stolen database. We check their couple of major databases of art. In addition to the appraisal company or the auction house, we will look up comparable works of art and see what the trend line is. Now, a couple of other things that, and we've seen some silly stuff in the marketplace. We're pretty anal on the due diligence. I would argue, you know, as I said before, the eighth wonder of the world, and you can never do too much due diligence. So if we take art that comes out of the U.S., we like it in the U.S., which I'll get to, you got to get an export certificate. And you got to make sure the export certificate is real. I know that's ugly, but it's true. And you want to make sure we saw a loan that somebody had done where it was not a permanent export certificate. So if they had to sell the art, they had to go back to the country of origin and get a permanent export certificate. So we like permanent export certificates in case, which we haven't had, there's a default and you need to sell the art. You want to be able to do that because you control it, but you want to be able to sell it. One other, one other point. And again, this is shocking to me how casual people are, some investors, including some hedge funds. This is a real asset. And you're used to this, given your real estate experience. We do a UCC1 search. The advantage of the United States is they have something called the Uniform Commercial Code, which when you file a claim against a hard asset, you got to file it properly. That's important. But it gives you priv so-called privity to the car. You are then listed as the senior person controlling that piece of collateral. You want to do that. You want to do it wisely. You want to do it carefully. Now, the U.S. is the only one that has that clarity in the law. 
So when we, if we get art from, you know, we're getting a bunch of art coming in, being shipped to us, to the warehouse now from Italy. Would we, the, the borrower says, well, I'd like to keep in Italy. He says, well, no, it's not so clear. We could have control of the collateral, but there could be a super priority claim against the art that would trump our control. So we like the art to be in the U.S. where we can file that UCC one against it. One other place you can keep it, we've, we've looked at all the legality of it is London. It's complicated, but you can get comfort in keeping art in London. Other than that, we haven't found a good place to maintain the control of the art. Um, so there you have some of the stuff and our prejudices as to why we like this. Uh, it's growing. Uh, you know, it's not, when I was back in the brokerage business, I used to say, and I had, a, you know, a lot of people reporting to me, they'd say, well, Alan, we like this deal. And I'd say, no, there's so many wealth advisors we have. If we can't put a billion dollars into it, it doesn't really, that dog don't hunt. Today, I don't have that problem of, of investing a billion dollars personally, but like most niches, this will absorb, mm, give or take, 250 million of capital. Uh, and you don't want to get there instantly. You want to grow into that shoe carefully. Now, one thing is we, we you and I had a little chatter before we started uh, this conversation. I'll give you a couple of other fun ideas. Should we talk about some other stuff? Yeah, I mean, let's go into uh, what other alternative assets that are out there. I mean, I always have um, a lot of friends or guests that, you know, they're out there looking to place capital or they exited their companies. And, uh, you know, I think so much, we're seeing so much wealth being created in the markets today, especially for the younger people that are becoming millionaires or, you know, five, 10, 20 million. And now they have these this capital, they don't really know what to do with a lot of times. And so they're out there trying to get educated. And so wherever we can come insight on how to do due diligence and find the right alternative assets to invest in is great. Hard work is most. <laughs> uh, and find somebody that you are confident in. I mean, do we have a license and all the great ideas? No, we, I talked to other investors like me and, and listen, Talk less, listen more. Now, I'll give you a couple of ideas and we can talk about diligencing. You shared with me that you had the fun experience of living in Puerto Rico, right? Yep, yep, four and a half years. So you, are, you know the market. Now, here's an interesting opportunity. I think it's kind of fascinating. Let, let me lead into it a little bit. In March of this year, there was a big crunch because of COVID. And a lot of pricing just got pummeled. CLOs, collateral loan obligations, dropped like a stone. However, the assumptions that were being made at those price levels assumed a default rate that you'd have to look at it and say, are you kidding? 
the world would have come to an end if it had hit those default rates. So it was a great opportunity to scoop up double B, triple B CLOs and incredibly, you know, the, the prices had really widened, gapped. And in the last year, they've gone back, not totally, so there's still a little juice left in that lemon, but have, have shrunk. Now, back to Puerto Rico, same kind of opportunity, I think. Puerto Rico issued a series of closed-end muni bond funds. UBS, you may remember them. UBS issued, I don't know, about a billion and a half. But you had to be a Puerto Rican resident to own them to get all the benefits. Okay. Puerto Rico, sadly, has gotten just pounded in like a tense post. So those closed-end muni bond funds have traded down because there's nobody to buy them. They're trading at somewhere between 35 and 50% discounts to the underlying value of the bonds that are inside those funds. No exit. Sartre's no exit. Hell. However, here's the opportunity. The new regulation is that they will have to become registered in the U.S. by roughly May. Now, most closed-end muni bond funds trade at a discount, let's call it 10%. Sometimes flat, but let's all be conservative, say 10%. So as these funds, about a billion and a half of visible supply, that gap of 40 to 50% discount, you would think will get narrowed as they become registered in the US and people arbitrage the portfolios. There is an interesting, similar to the CLO trade, and I brought it up just because of your Puerto Rican experience. I do have a relationship there. I wonder, I know he was playing in, in the bond space. Well, that's his fund, but I know he was doing stuff in, uh, you know, the Puerto Rico area because there was opportunity there. I don't know what that opportunity still looks like, but definitely. Well, this could. is special. You know, the, you know, the, the, uh, all the PREPA and all the different acronyms for the bonds in Puerto Rico have been a great trade as they get restructured. Now, that's munis. I would say the muni bond market is another fascinating market for investors. Traditionally, buy a few bonds, sit on them forever. Mm, I think there's better ways to do it. You know, having been married forever, my wife was a muni bond corporate finance person, muni bond finance person. So have pity on me, Joe. There's a lot of pillow talk at night about the muni bond markets for years and years. Okay. What's special and interesting about the muni bond market? Most of the players are mutual funds and retail investors and or people that need the tax effect, insurance companies, et cetera. But they all want investment grade bonds. All right. 
you have issuers in the muni bond category, these municipal bond underwriting authorities in various states, and they get pressured by social issues. So you may have a uh, assisted care facility that's gonna be built. So it gets underwritten and some of the ratings are too high. So the bonds get underwritten as an investment grade bond. Fine. Now it, they're in the going through building the darn facility and it's, not, it's taking too long, it's not as full. And those bonds that started out as investment grade get re-rated. Now you have this great sucking sound as all of the investment grade investors, which are most of them, can't hold those bonds any longer. They have to sell them. So the prices tank, maybe down to you know, 70, down to all the way to 30. Now, unlike some value investment plays in the stock market, which can last you know, a long time, given recent history for sure, you know the bond must be restructured so there is an end game. Fascinating opportunity because you think about the gains, part of them from the, from the yield tax-free. Ooh, that's attractive. And if the bond gets restructured and goes from let's say 30 to maybe 75 capital gains. So a very effective, very attractive tax structure. Now, I would argue for a lot of the investors that are in high tax brackets, for a portion of their money in that 40% bucket, maybe even considering in the more aggressive bucket, the 60%, this is a fascinating and very attractive space to invest in. Now, looping all the way around to your question, are you gonna do this as an individual investor? I would say, if you have endless time, sure, and good, a smart brain and experience, but best left to an expert. Now, you wanna do a lot of due diligence on that expert. On the website, I get the fun of writing some of this stuff. There are probably nine or 10 articles that we've written about doing due diligence on a strategy and or a manager. One of them, I think there's 300 plus questions to torture a manager with. <laughs> okay, are you gonna ask everyone? No, but you're gonna ask a lot of them and they're not all obvious. Second, you say, okay, what information should I get from a manager to make a reasoned judgment? It's an article about that. Hard to do with COVID, but that'll open up, I hope, as vaccines happen. If you make a physical inspection of a manager, what do you do while you're visiting and talking to them? How do you do an on-site examination. 
I mean, I talk to people in the business, in my case being old and crashly, ask my wife, they, you know, people say, well, we walked in, we had a cup of coffee, stupid, come on. If you can invest the time and energy, put the time effectively to use. I'll give you one obvious thing. What do you want to do? You want to meet with the people separately. You'd be amazed at how open people will be when somebody's not looking over their shoulder. That would be sort of a trite, maybe obvious suggestion. Then other articles about you say, all right, even if you do all this work and you've been an investor for a while, what should it be to fire a manager? When, when, when should you fire one? And what should go into that consideration? It's, again, I would argue it's one of the hardest things to do because we get invested, we become vested in a manager, right? Yep. You, you say, oh, I know him, he's a good guy, blah, blah, blah. How do I graciously disengage? Uh, that's not so clear either. So there's articles about that. Um, so what are your key, like just top maybe three key points that you look for in the best managers out there? Because at the end of the day, that's what you're looking for. And, you know, there's a lot of noise. I, here's one that's kind of corny. Do I think they have to have been in business forever? No. Frequently, newer managers are quite attractive to invest in. Why? Because they know the early years are critical to their longevity. If they lose money in the earlier years, they're dead. That is a mackerel. Done. Carry them out. So they will be especially careful about losses, generally. So that's one thing to be careful about with a manager. You know, one thing to look for. Then the other one that, again, uh, I think is important. is a duty of care for their investors. When you hear a money manager talk flippantly about their investors, run, run. And so a lot of them do run. I, I wouldn't invest. Third, we do a deep dive and we invest outside of what we do directly at Shinnecock. We pull, we look on the web, we also get a third party to do a deep dive on the individuals involved. And you'd smile, you'd say, well, of course, Alan, if you ask them a direct question, they'll tell you the answer. No, I'll give you a fun war story. Years ago, we were looking at a money manager in Hawaii. And of course, there were bets at Shinnecock because who's going to do the on-site? <laughs> uh, you can imagine. But we asked the manager, is there anything in your background that's not immediately apparent that we should know about? It? And the guy said, oh, no, you know, everything's normal. And he, his performance was terrific, by the way. Um, so we did this third-party due diligence, and here's what it uncovered. 
This fellow had a $80,000 judgment against him from American Express. Had a tax lien, I've forgotten the amount, I think it was around $50,000 tax lien, perfected tax lien. He'd been in a fistfight with his neighbor over some flap. Okay, so then we said to him, geez, you know, you didn't mention any of this. Oh, well, you know, you can't be a worrywart, you guys. Uh, all of us have a little hair on ourselves. Uh, so we passed as a result. Um, but that's been very helpful and has saved our bacon over the years to do those third party uh, research on managers, you know, do litigation searches. For example, in the art space, we're lending against the hard asset. You'd say, well, great, that's all you care about. Well, not exactly. We also pull, this is from my Discover Card days, we pull six to eight Experian reports on the borrower. And we do a LexisNexis search. Why? We're lending against the asset. We're not doing a cash flow loan like a bank. But life is short. I'll give you a specific. There was a well-heeled, famous player that, that wanted to undertake a loan with us. Name brand guy, you'd know his name. He sues everybody. Endless litigation. And so I said to him, geez, you know, we'd love to do this loan. It's a great piece, several great pieces of art. I said, but you sue everybody that you do business with. And here's the answer. He said, but Alan, I would never sue you. <laughs> yeah. And I said, yeah. you tell that to all the girls. <laughs> so I think that's important. Um, so it's hard to do too much due diligence. There's a lot of meat on the website about very specific, you know, how-tos for the DIY investor. Um, and one, one, one other thing that's kind of out there for the very sophisticated people listening. People say... And it's true. So, well, look, you have to be a long-term investor. Well, there's a concept, Nassim Taleb's more certainly a famous guy. There's a intellectual concept called ergodic scenarios. There's an article on the website where I talk about it called Wackadoodle. Most portfolio advice is Wackadoodle. And it gets to ergodicity. Here's the concept. You'd say, well, look, in the long term, equity investing is done very well. Depending who you ask, somewhere between eight, nine, nine and a half percent over 60 years. Here's the problem. As an individual investor, you can't get that. You don't have that time horizon. And in truth, there's almost an impossible way of getting that. And it depends on your point of entry. Critical. Let me give you an example for fun, Joe. If I gave you this wager, 
Think of Russian roulette. I've got a revolver. I'm going to put one bullet in one of the six chambers. All right. I'll give you a million dollars for playing this game. Should you take the bet? No. Why? I mean, being, you know, being alive is worth more than a million bucks. <laughs> exactly. The risk of ruin. However, mathematically, the expected value of that trade is $833,000. So mathematically, just like the guy, long-term investor, you'd say, you should take the trade. Except you, you look at it and say, let's get practical. What's my risk of ruin? As an investor, what's my time horizon? Do I have 60 years? Probably not. What is my psychological profile? Can I sustain, you know, the situation where I'm down 50%? Am I willing to hang in there? Because long run, I'll be fine. Maybe so, maybe not. Think of 0809. If you're in NASDAQ stocks, you're down 72%. And it took a long, bloody time to get even. Long time. So that, that's another thing. Fourth, what, what are my liquidity needs? And this really is essential in investing when you think about it. What liquidity do I need out of the portfolio? You know, for years, people would say, well, you know, I'm going to retire. All right. So I'm going to be making steady withdrawals out of my retirement fund. Well, if the stocks are down, if it's all, let's say, 100% equities, and they're down 30%, 20%, whatever, and I'm taking money out, that money's gone. It will never reappreciate to get that long-term average, a real critical mathematical concept that frequently gets lost. When I was first in the business, you would say, ah, you know, you'd get 7%. That's what you assume assumptions should be on your portfolio. Well, it depends on what your liquidity, how much you're taking out of it, A. Depends on the cycle when you started really important. Today, it's come down. People say BlackRock recently talked about, you know, maybe equities will generate in the next 10 years, the three to 5% return. Maybe. Now, going all the way back to where we started, you'd say the average pension plan with all the investment expertise and a horizon that stretches out to the hereafter, right? It's gotten a 6% return. So what are you likely to get? The average investor, by the way, over the last uh, 10 years, the average investors earned less than 3% in the raging bull market. 
So set, I guess what I'm also suggesting, set a realistic hurdle for yourself. Don't be, you know, like the moth drawn to the brightest flame. You know, that 25, 30%. <laughs> Thought we got to match Warren Buffett, 20% annually, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you read the article, by the way. Venture. People talk about venture. Yeah. And they invest in a, a, a concentrated venture fund. There was recently uh, some mathematical analysis that says, if you're going to play in venture, mathematically, you need to have four to 500 positions to get the laws of large numbers to really work for you. How many venture investors do that? They're far more concentrated. Now they may get lucky, but getting lucky is not a great investment strategy. Definitely not. That's good. I think, I think we're running up a, on time there, but I mean, that was really good insight and that it resonates, you know, in the private lending market when it comes to the artwork. Cause one of my, you know, guys at the capital markets desk says, you know, it's best to find a niche nobody is looking at, you know, and, and go after that because, you know, obviously a lot of these alternative lenders over the last year, some of them are going out of business. And so I think that's very interesting that you have been able to find that niche and it's working. It's, it's very cool to see. Uni bonds, specialty finance, they're out there, but they take work. And uh, best of luck to everybody listening. And so we, you. Thank you. And we have our last question is what is, you know, the biggest thing that you've implemented in your life that has helped increase your net worth? Uh, I would say the best learning is learning when to leave and take your chips off the table. Preservation of capital. That, that's a very good point. And how, how do you suggest emotionally people get better at that? <laughs> Uh, try to think about, the, you know, those four characteristics that I mentioned, liquidity, risk tolerance, what, what really are you willing to accept? Time horizon, very important. Look hard at those, write it down, and then stick to your guns. Have a business playbook, know, it, know when you're supposed to exit and adhere to it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate coming on today. What is the best way for any guests to get a hold of you or learn more about you? Uh, go to shinnecock.com, S-H-I-N-N-E-C-O-C-K, like the golf course, like the place in uh, Long Island. Uh, that's the best place. You know, you can learn more about the art, see the articles, See us. Uh, that's a good way to get a hold of us. And I'm easy to find. Well, and thank you for coming on the show today. Nice to meet you. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. We'll see you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to The Joe Roberts Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Roberts Show.
your ride.